Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to the show. I'm Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Lindsay Miller. She's Her website is distressnanny.com, and she works on instilling mindfulness in children. I'm really excited to talk to you because mindfulness was a big part and still is a big part of my life. Um, it's part of my drug and alcohol recovery, part of my work as a psychotherapist. And if I had learned this as a kid, I feel like my life would be on a completely different trajectory. So Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. I feel exactly the same way about mindfulness. I often look back and we'll get into my story, but I look back and think if only I'd had these tools you know, during some of those really formative years, it would have made a big difference. Yeah, right. Like just being able to kind of separate myself or my awareness from my feelings would have been big. You know, I was a, um, I was actually a pretty depressed and shut down kid, but I was actually overwhelmed with feeling. I didn't know what to do, right? My mind would spin. I had a lot of internalized shame. I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, nervousness. You know, I was so shy that I couldn't even like buy anything from a store. I couldn't do like kind of like a scripted step-by-step -step interaction, let alone have a conversation, you know, with somebody. Um, and I think being able to take a step back would have been really instrumental. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there are so many kids for whom that's the case. You know, it it tears up my heart hearing your story. And I think that there's there's so many kids out there who have a similar situation where like the intensity of what they feel is just so much and it's overwhelming to them in a way that makes it hard for them to know what's going on within, you know, and then engage outwardly, you know, with any of it. Totally. Yeah. It's just like a total flood, you know, just all the outlets are plugged in and firing at full capacity. Yeah, definitely. So you, tell us a little bit about your story, right? Because in this show, we want to focus on the personal stories first. Um, yeah. So yeah, what's your From the Ashes story? Yeah. So my husband and I got married pretty young and we thought it would be so great to start our family. We have you know, we come from big families and we thought we're just going to start our family, you know, just as we're finishing up school and and figure out a way to, you know, just make our our little family grow. And pretty quick, we realized it was not going to be that smooth for us. We were going to have a bit of trouble in that regard. And at first, you know, it was just that every day, like it's taking some time. You're young, you're newly married. Don't worry about it. And then it got to the point where it was really, really, really like a, a longer stretch. You know, we're talking about years and years and years and more and more interventions and more and more struggle emotionally, mentally, you know, all those things play into infertility in a really significant way. And yeah. so our marriage struggled, you know, we were again, newly married. And so it, it just was two young kids trying to go through something super hard. We didn't have the words. We didn't have the self-awareness to kind of know what, what was going on internally. Kind of like you mentioned with those big overwhelming feelings, you don't know necessarily how to communicate it. And so our marriage struggled. We were individually struggling. You know, we're just trying to get careers off the ground and just in a stage of life that's already really tricky and complicated so much by infertility. Um, so we went through, you know, some different fertility treatments. Um, 
And they were kind of like, you know, you just need to go to in vitro right off the bat. Like, really, we don't want to try any more of this mid-range stuff. Like, in vitro is the thing you need to do. So we um, started saving up for that because that's not cheap, you know. So financially, we're just trying to get into our first house. We're trying to, you know, just get our bearings, you know, money-wise. And it just was a lot. And so the overwhelm just kept kind of piling up and piling up and piling up. Eventually, we were fortunate enough to have our daughter and we we did in vitro and it, it worked and we were so thrilled. Um, and she, you know, such a joy to to raise and she was this little toddler running around and we're like, okay, we've got these frozen embryos, we're going to go back, we're going to try this again. And we go back for the frozen cycle. And it had been a long year. I had been um, helping my sister with a startup. We'd gotten a puppy. I have this toddler. You know, again, the fertility treatments take a ton of time, energy, money. And then, like, the toll on the body is significant. Yeah. yeah. And so at the end of that year, um, it was a clinical pregnancy. I ended up miscarrying um, shortly thereafter. And so the grief from that was overwhelming, right? Because we didn't have a lot of frozen embryos. And so that was, you know, one of our, our a big shot to grow our family. And then to top it all off, um, my body just kind of tanked. Like the toll of all that stress cumulatively, mm-hmm. it really just started to come to bear. And I had an autoimmune flare that was... Um, really, really significant and left me with very little mobility. Like my joints were super achy. I could hardly move my head. I couldn't pick up my three-year-old. It was just really, really rough. And so I remember sitting in our living room at the time, shortly after the new year, um, I'd been four months of just misery and my body was just wrecked. And I mentally was in a really rough spot because I was like, if this is what it's like at 33, like, what is it, you know? Where does it go from here, right? I know, exactly. Yeah. And I had these dreams of being a certain kind of mom, you know, at least one that could pick up her kid. And um, it just was, it was a lot. And and I was sitting there in the living room looking at my daughter and I was like, there's got to be another way. Like, there has to be a way through this. And nobody's giving me the answers. And I'm not hearing, you know, I'm hearing people tell stories about, you know, how their health just tanked and they never recovered or they just, you know, had this struggle and they never kind of got through it. And I was like, I want, I want to move through this. I don't know how, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I want to move through it. Um, And so I started, I just like started that climb out and figured out, you know, different practitioners to work with different. I did a like an anti-inflammatory diet for a couple of years to figure out what foods were triggering me. Um, I worked through the grief, you know, we went to a grief group for the infertility and for the loss. And we were able to move through, you know, like mentally, emotionally, and physically into a space where we could find joy again and, you know, just be excited about our life and accept what it looked like without like my preconceived ideas about what it was going to look like. And through all of that, mindfulness was so key for me because it was really like a tuning into what was going on inside me, kind of what was going on outside of me and how to blend those two things into a life that I was excited about. And so um, as I got better and as I just had more and more energy and I could engage in my life in a more normal way, and then I had capacity to kind of like start to create meaning outside of our little family, I was like, what would be the most meaningful way I could translate this struggle into, you know, like a a forward thinking or a forward momentum activity? Like what would be the way I could take all of this and take this learning that I have and offer it up? And then that's where mindfulness came into play, especially for kids, because I thought exactly what you thought, you know, as you started the show, like, hey, I 
would have benefited so much, you know, from these tools at any of those junctures, right? Like along the way. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, okay, if I could figure out ways to teach these, these tools and these skills to kids who are little in playful and fun ways, they'll get to build their life with that. You know, like they'll build the rest of their resilience journey from that space of mindfulness and from intention. And there's, it's so meaningful and rewarding to, to really utilize the things that were hard fought, you know, for me in a way that like makes kids uh, lives easier and helps remove some of the barriers and burdens that, that they face in that way. And one last thing as we were, as we were kind of on this road to recovery, one of the things we did was we said, I'm going to do something I've always said I wanted to do, but never, you know, that your bucket list, the stuff you're like, someday I'm going to. And after those years of recovery, I realized I wasn't going to take any of these moments for granted. And so one of the things we had always wanted to do is go to Guatemala. My husband had spent time there during college. And um, very cool. Yeah. We went up this volcano with a guide. And he said, you know, look around right now where you're at. And we were looking at these gorgeous like flowers and all these trees. And it was just like this beautiful lush jungle area. And he was like, this, this volcano erupted five years ago. And everything you see now was completely decimated. Like it was nothing, you know? And he was like, all of this came from the rejuvenation and it turns out that ash is a really great rejuvenator for this jungle and so the rejuvenation that took place after that eruption is what you see now and i never would have known looking at it you know but that's why i really love what you do because i think we don't always hear about the explosion right like we don't always hear the ashes story and the disaster and so when when i put it in the context looking at that mountain i just looked around me and thought oh my gosh like that that's what i'm living right like i'm living beauty after ashes and it's because i took those ashes sifted through them figured out <laughs> figured out what to use you know and then translated that growth forward that's thank you for sharing that that's really touching that's really touching that you know there's a connection between the theme of this show and and your personal journey i mean that's such a powerful image i I love nature as a teacher, and that's what what an incredible one you had at that moment on the top of that volcano. I want to take you back to that ashes moment of, you know, you're there, right? Your body is shutting down, right? You have a kid. You've gone through this, you know, IVF nightmare that I've heard from many people. Like you said, it's like exhausting on every level, right? Financial, spiritual, emotional, mental, all of it, right? Yeah. Um, and you're looking and you, and you have this moment where you said, I'm not going to be a victim here, right? Or I'm not going to let my life just crumble. And if you, maybe it's not a moment, maybe it's a, a period of time, but I just, can you kind of like expand on that a little bit? Because like you said, so many people can get stuck in depression or can get stuck in a victim mentality or can get stuck in a, at a low point in their life. And I'm curious what helped you to round that corner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, stories like the ones you tell here, for sure. Because I think one of the things that kept me from believing it was possible was knowing other people who had done it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I didn't know at that time. So I was just thinking like what I was wanting wasn't possible. Like that I, I like I had some dream idea that I could get better from this, but that it was um, kind of out of reach. And so one of the things I started to do was to look, you know, like, has anyone been able to do this? Has anyone been able to take like Hashimoto's and this complete digestive disaster that I'm dealing with and, and turn it around. Um, and at first my hope was just this tiny little thing, right? I mean, it really was me like 
looking at a pile of ashes, which is what my life felt like, and sifting through it, like, is there anything salvageable here, mm-hmm. right? Like, is there any piece of this that I can make something out of? And the digestion, that was the first thing I was like, okay, if I could fix that, then maybe I could get some more energy and then I can work on some of the other stuff, right? And so being able to just have a tiny ray of hope that helped. And again, I immersed myself in stories of people who did it because at every turn mentally, I was like, oh, there's no way I can do this. Like everyone else could do this. I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I don't have the discipline. I don't have, you know, I talked myself out of it so often that it really was just like sitting in stories constantly of hope. Like, nope, you can do this. There are people who do this. You got to just keep trying. And and I think like many of your you know guests and many of your listeners, I'm sure, and your story as well, like those changes, like you said, they don't come overnight. I don't like one day decide to feel better and then the next day feel better. I mean, we were talking about years. Yeah. And so every day, like choosing to hope that was the that was the thing that like helped me keep making the hard choices. I mean, I had to learn to cook a whole new way because I was using ingredients I'd never even like knew knew of before, you know. Um, so choosing to hope every day, that was a big thing. And then also just giving myself permission to be around people like in real life who believed that I could do it. Because I found that there were a lot of people who were willing to sit with me in my misery, which I appreciated you know, and there's always so much camaraderie and and beauty that comes from being able to empathize in that way. But I needed the people who believed I could move Mm -hmm. to a different space in order to get there. Right. That you were connecting on that hope. I I really like that idea, right? Of choosing to hope. And it sounds like really, it might be a step far based on what you're talking about, but I I thought I could fit it as like a little child, like kind of nurturing this like little baby, little vulnerable creature, you know, like a little ember that's there in the ashes of, we're going to keep it alive. We're not going to let it go out. You know, we're going to feed it when we can and just keep that hope growing. Um, it's beautiful that that's what you orient your life towards rather than yeah. misery, right? Or rather than wallowing and suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. how you put that. I think, and, and I think it was really like the nurturing of a new worldview, both mm-hmm. like of what was possible for me personally and then what was out there in the world. Because I started connecting with people who had done incredible things with their health, who had been able to find so much meaning and joy after infertility, you know? And I was like, oh, I just haven't been exposed to that way of seeing life before. And once I was, I kind of grasped onto it. And like, if we're comparing it to that ember, I'm like trying to blow it. Like, could this be true for me too? I didn't know, but I nurtured the thought and nurtured the hope and eventually it became true. Yeah. So tell me more about that, right? Because what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that when everything burns to the ground and it's, we can focus on, of course, the macro themes of what's happening. But I imagine you have a sense to really reconsider everything. Like you had your perspective, your mindset, your beliefs about the world, about society. I mean, everything must have been on the table at some point, right? It's like, let's just pull out all the cards, see what we're working with and sort through it. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I mean, that's a challenging space to occupy, right? Because it's, it does leave you feeling really unsettled in so many ways, but it simultaneously opens you up to potentialities that you hadn't previously considered. 
Yeah. I mean, I had to rethink things that I thought were just so obvious, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one was like how judgmental I believed other people were, right? Because I was very judgmental, right? Or one of <laughs> how afraid of the world I was because I thought that a negative interaction would just destroy me. And it's like, no, that's actually fine. People are actually generally pretty good hearted, you know, um, a lot of victim mentality around our economic systems or around, you know, the privilege I was born with, all that kind of stuff. Like I had to really reconsider all of that. Um, because for me, it was all interconnected. I imagine the same thing for you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And primarily for me, the the biggest one I worked through was the thought that self-care was selfish. Yeah. Like yeah. that by me taking time to care for myself, I was robbing other people of the attention that I would be giving them when in what reality, what I learned, and I'm sure the same for you is that like, the more that I poured into myself, the bigger the reservoir I had to offer up to other people. Yeah, that's that's such a big one. And I want to talk a lot more about that when we come back from the break. I hear that with a lot of my, you know, female guests. I think especially around some of the oppressive messages that you all get, right? Of being a caretaker, being a mother, right? Being a good partner. Mm-hmm. And I hear so many women talk about just being internally just starved, right? Or giving everything to other people and then collapsing in on themselves, which sounds like was a little bit of your story. Um, so we're going to head to our commercial break. When we come back, I want to hear more about that. We'll move into that mindfulness piece um, and talk about, you know, your role as a mother and coach now. So if Great. you're tuning in, um, hang on in there through the commercials and we'll see you on the other side. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. 
Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. I'm here with Lindsay Miller, and we're talking about, I mean, the oppression of women. Uh, We're also talking about, you know, caregivers, um, burnout, this idea that self-care is selfish. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. So Lindsay, take it away. What was your journey like around that? Yeah. So initially I had this idea and part of it was as a result of my faith. Uh, and part of it was just a cultural conditioning that the more I helped other people, the better my life would be. And it sounds kind of silly in hindsight, like that if I put all my energy outward, that my life will just turn into something kind of amazing. And there are definitely benefits and beautiful things about helping other people. There also is so much to be said for growing as an individual, cultivating your gifts and knowing yourself well enough to know what you need and how to care for yourself really deeply and gently. And I found that those were skills that I didn't necessarily have. So during that stretch of time where I was trying to recover my health, my you know mental and emotional well-being, I was kind of like coming up empty when it came to tools for being gentle with myself. You know, I would stay up routinely till two, like prepping a, you know, a project for somebody's, you know, service thing, or I would, you know, run myself ragged at night trying to make a meal for a neighbor. Mm-hmm. And all those things are wonderful, but not like consecutive evenings. Right. But my yeah, life was not all of them at the same time. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. But I felt like my worth was kind of derived from my benefit to others. And that's where it was got a little dicey for me because during this stretch of time where I had to focus so much on my own well-being, I really had to reframe my thoughts around what it like what my worth was like my worth is just as a human showing up. Right. It's not in my use to someone else. And um, that was a hard thing for me to kind of sit with and and recalibrate in my own thought processes because I just didn't have a framework for it. I hadn't really seen anyone take deep and intentional care of themselves and in also, you know, show up in the world in a way that I really admired. And so I was I was trying to come up with what that looked like and what it meant. And so as I came across these stories of women who weren't running themselves into the ground, but were really like focusing on their well-being, focusing on, you know, spending some time figuring out what foods nourished them, what kind of self-care activities were the most important for them to participate in regularly. I was kind of like, oh, I guess I could pay a little bit more attention to that for myself. And then I'd always had this kind of nudge that yoga would be fun. And so during that time, that was kind of my guilty pleasure. I was like, I'm going to let myself try this. 
you know, and it sounds again, so silly now that letting myself try going to a yoga class would be something that would be a big step. But for me at that time, it really was both in terms of resource allocation, time and energy. Like, so I started going to yoga several times a week and it, it really was transformational in a way that, um, really set me up for success for the rest of it because it gave me the space and the time and the permission to notice what worked for me, what, you know, how my body felt. I was in the class with these women who were like 75 and they were doing the poses way more adeptly than I was. Oh yeah. And and in this gentle yoga class, I was just doing my best to like hold my, you know, like hold myself up in plank with my little wrist, wrist supporter, you know, for as many seconds as I could. Cause I had that, you know, I was that weak. I had that limited range of motion. And so it, it was it was really um, beautiful for me to connect with community of especially women who had a practice of self-care and who incorporated this sense of like personal well-being as a priority into every day because it gave me a model for how that looked and, and what maybe I could be doing at my stage of life to make a, just like a more gentle entry into my later years. Yeah, I love that story. And I have a similar story with with yoga and, and the journey of like getting into my body, which I think is huge. And I think the first thing encountering is the pain and stiffness and soreness. And, you know, I like to kind of use that as a metaphor of like this change process. Again, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? There's often this thing yeah. of like, oh my God, like I do need my little wrist supporter just to stand up a little bit, right? These people in their 70s are crushing it right now. And <laughs> it's such a, it's such a, can be a painful mirror until it sounds like what you did was make it really inspiring mirror of being like, Oh, look at what they can do. That's incredible. Right. They were able to, to make a change in their life. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and you know, like yogis have good stories, mm-hmm. you know, because they've often found themselves in a similar position of limited mobility or struggle or, you know, a crisis in the body or mind. And th- they've used yoga to work through and that's why they are where they are. And so it put me in touch with the community of people who had their own stories of healing that I could again kind of grasp onto and say, okay, if this was possible for them, it's possible for me. I think also yoga was a good teacher for me because it helped me move through the setbacks, right? Because anytime we're trying to heal anything, inevitably we run into so many setbacks Mm -hmm. and we feel like, oh, things are just moving great. Like I'm doing fine. I'm really moving in the right direction. And then, you know, I would go to class one day and I would be back to where I couldn't move my neck again. And I was like, oh, I thought we were done with this. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's more just a process and a, a willing to a willingness to engage with the process than it is an end result. And so yoga got me like on the mat every day to just keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. And trying in a very like visceral, guttural way, right. Of like, yeah, I can't move my shoulder like I did last weak, but I'm still going to try and push here um, or, or be compassionate. Right. And just let it like trust that it's going to figure itself out. Um, so with yoga, was that your first exposure to mindfulness practice or did you know about it beforehand? You know, I had read in high school, um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat by Oliver mm-hmm. Sacks. And so I had exposure to psychology early on and had always kind of been enamored with it. I just thought it was fascinating to think of 
life from that like higher level perspective where you're kind of taking everything in. And so it, I had a familiarity with it, my degrees in child development. And so we, you know, I had different exposure to mindfulness throughout my educational and then professional years, but I didn't have a solid practice in place. And so, yeah, yoga was the first space where I started meditating consistently, where I really felt a level of comfort with mindfulness and meditation uh, that wasn't external. Like I always felt like it was a little woo woo, like away from me out there, something someone else did. And as I brought the practice into my life and realized the beauty and simplicity of it, it, it just felt accessible to me in, you know, in so many ways. And I felt so much gratitude for the teachers who imparted it, you know, like who made it accessible for me in the stage of life I was at in the circumstances I was in. Um, they just kind of handed it to me in a really gracious way. And luckily I accepted it. Yeah, I, I I love that. You know, it was my first exposure really to it too. Or I guess I'd read some Eastern philosophy stuff, maybe similar to you, but practicing in yoga and something I'm curious if you relate with this is my mind was so strung out that I needed like an extreme amount of stimulus just to like calm down. Right. So I was doing like hot power vinyasa level three, like with Beyonce blaring, right. And like with all these like, you know, workout moms and stuff. And yeah. I needed that. I mean, that was a level of intensity that I needed um, before. And I had to do that. And I want to say to our listeners, I do that for like two or three years before I was able just to like sit and meditate and do the more traditional practice, you know, because sitting was way, was too low stimulus for me. I would just like freak out, get antsy, get itchy, get like really anxious, um, get really distracted. So I needed to hit that perfect level of connection, which was very high when I first started, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And so many people that I have either worked with, I am on the faculty for a yoga and mindfulness school. And so many teachers that come through, you know, have that experience where they're like, I just, I couldn't settle. It had to be like a level of simulation that was so intense in order for me to sink into my body and let my mind be a little more quiet. And for me, I didn't have the, I don't know if luxury is the word, but I didn't have the mobility, like the range of motion to do anything but like a gentle restorative class. And so I, I it felt like a lot of energy expenditure for me, even in that small way, just because my energy reserves were so low. But I do remember thinking to myself, like, I have never just sat like this before and like tuned inward. Like I've sat and watched a movie or I'm, you know, notorious for double, you know, multitasking, trying to do two things at once. And so I would always sit and do something else <laughs> instead of like sit and just notice. And so I remember how novel that was, you know, when I would sit in this class and I had this sweet little grandma teacher and she just would you know, tell me to notice different parts of my body and accept them with judgment, without judgment and with love. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want to be really angry at my neck right now because I need it to move, you know, and it's not. And my back was going out all the time. And I was like, I need to be able to walk and sit in a car. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be patient with this. And um, yeah, that invitation to just settle in and just be okay with what was, it was so powerful for me because yeah, like you, it was the first time I had ever kind of like just stopped and let it be. Yeah. What are some of the things that you noticed that you can put your mind back there, either about, about your body, maybe, you know, feelings or, you know, for a lot of people, emotions can kind of bubble up um, or things about the way your mind worked. What are some of the kind of insights you had through your mindfulness practice? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think primarily that idea of non-judgment, 
I had, you know, I, you can relate to, I know this, this sense of extreme judgment for myself, for other people. And I tried to be compassionate and understanding, but I, I did have some pretty strong ideas and expectations about, you know, like what, what was supposed to be in any given situation and the invitation to just let be what was, I just, I remember feeling like such a liberation around it. And at first it felt a little scary to me to let go of my judgments and my expectations and my, you know, cause I'm like, well, no, 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 I'm trying to get better. Like, I don't want to let go of that. And it took a while. And this sweet teacher was just so perfect for me. Um, and she just would work with me on recognizing that the acceptance allows the movement forward. And that if you're fighting what is, you're never going to make it anywhere. And and that was salient for me because I no one had ever kind of approached mental health, physical health, any kind of health, you know, in that way with me before. It was always like better, faster, stronger, more, you know. And I'm I was an athlete. And so I was always like pushing and trying. And during this time, I had been doing sprint triathlons with some friends. And so I was just like so angry that I couldn't be doing the next triathlon with them, you know, instead of just like, okay, just calm down. Like, but you can't. And that's where you're at. So be in that space and then let's see where we go from there. And that's where I think for me, the healing became um, much more fluid because I, in, in, in those days, I wasn't setting that high benchmark anymore for what healing looked like. I was just accepting the next tiny step or the next tiny like range of motion, you know, gain that I made. And, and that made a big difference because I felt successful as a result instead of feeling like I was failing because I had this super high bar, you know, that I was just like never going to get to. I was like, oh, you know what? I can move my neck in both directions today and it didn't actually hurt. And that felt like such a big win, but it only came because I had accepted that I couldn't move it at all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk to you more about that because something that, you know, being transparent, I still work with is accepting disappointment yeah, and being okay with being disappointed. I am so bad yeah. at being disappointed, right? I'm saying this as a therapist and a Buddhist practitioner that I'm supposed to be non-judgmental. Yeah. Sometimes I'm not, you know, and when I get disappointed, I can get totally derailed too, right? I can fall into depression. I can just get kind of like pissy, you know, grumpy, yeah. Um, I can really just kind of get real sour grapes about it. Um, and I think a lot of my clients struggle with that too. I work with a lot of high performers. So I'm curious, was that part of your story of learning how to tolerate and maybe even come to be compassionate towards disappointment or, or what was your journey with that? Yeah, like, it's such a good question. And I can really relate to what you're saying because I think, I think especially too in the world that we live in where so many things are possible that we do face disappointment so, so often. Um, one of the things that I think is, is important to note is the realization that like grief and disappointment go hand in hand. And when I would deny the grief, then I would be fighting the disappointment. But when I was okay to sit in the grief, then I was okay with the disappointment. So for me, it looked like accepting, acknowledging grief, like letting go of my expectations in a way that honored them and like, let me feel the sadness of letting them go and also created the space for something else to emerge. That's really wise. That's really wise. So giving yourself like the space and the compassion to acknowledge the loss, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think something that I try to work with is staying humble, like letting go of the fantasy that like, maybe I did do the best I could 
of there because I think I can have this narrative where I'm like, oh yeah, I could have done better. Or it could have worked out better. If only I tried harder or if only so-and-so didn't let me down or whatever the thing is, right? Like it's really hard to have that self-talk thing of like that actually might've been the best possible outcome from this situation, (laughs) even though it's extremely disappointing. Yeah. I think that's a great strategy for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I think also the the recognition too, and you, you alluded to it in that comment right there was just that like trying to imbue it with some sense of meaning, Mm -hmm. right? Like that might've been my best effort. That might've been me showing up as fully as I could in that moment. And if it was then accepting that, that, that that's what that looked like. Um, and then I think also for me, looking at it from the perspective of like, again, how can this serve me going forward? How can I, mm-hmm. how can I connect with someone else or have empathy with someone else as a result of this moment and this disappointment? Yeah. I like that you really seem to blend that somewhat naturally, right? What I would call like a stereotypical Eastern and Western viewpoint of like, yes, there's acceptance, compassion, present moment. That's more Eastern, right? And then there's the Western part of like, and we're moving forward, right? (laughs) And it's going to be progress because, you know, I work with primarily men. And I think when I bring up mindfulness to them, and I'd be curious, you know, actually probably more after the break about when we talk to children about accepting and being present and taking in, you know, meeting the energy where it's at and, you know, just being with the pain and being with the suffering, so many people flinch because they're like, oh no, like, I don't want to be stuck here. Like if I just accept it, then this is my life forever. And I like that you bring in some of that more Western and sounds like, like athlete mentality of like, yeah, but you're also going to get better. (laughs) (laughs) And from here (laughs) we're headed somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's, thank you for saying that. It's something that I have worked on because I do feel the same too, in terms of like, sometimes the Eastern teachings were hard for me to sit with because I'd be like, wait, I just don't want to sit in in this yeah forever. But when we when we can blend it with a sense of forward momentum, there's a lot we can do. There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, the skill that I try to teach my clients is like the next right thing, which I think you've talked about in your own words of like slowing down and doing like, okay, next right thing, next right thing, next right thing. It does create forward momentum, but it doesn't have that really rigid plan that I mm-hmm. think like a Western modality can really get stuck in, you know. Yeah, that's a great point that it's like the plan that sometimes derails the forward momentum. And if we can have the Eastern openness about the plan, sometimes the the Western momentum can carry us to amazing things. Right. Yeah. Like a plan is not a prediction, right? Or a plan is not a prophecy, right? Of like, it doesn't mean it has to be exactly that way. Um, so we're going to move into our final commercial break. When we get back, I want to speak directly with you about um, instilling mindfulness in children, uh, maybe some tools or techniques that you can share with some of our parents or caregivers out there that they could bring um, and kind of make it real in their lives and in their families. Um, I think it'll be really beneficial because I know we have a lot of Buddhist practitioner listeners and a lot of people that are interested in psychological development and mindfulness. So uh, if you're in that category, definitely stay tuned and we'll catch you on the other side of the commercial break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. 
One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. So, Lindsay, we just went through this incredible story of your from the ashes uh, experience, right? Of your life falling apart, having to rebuild, getting into a yoga practice, getting not only the physical benefits, but the emotional, mental, and spiritual benefits from it. And now you're out there being a mindfulness coach for children and, and kind of passing it on to the next generation, which I think is very poetic. It's incredible that you get to really be this spokesperson for these skills, Um so in this final segment, we'd like to talk directly to our listeners. And I'd be curious if there's any advice or techniques or skills that you'd like to give to, you know, the parents and caregivers out there that want to instill mindfulness in their children. Yes, I would love to. I think one of the most salient things about like any kind of recovery story, right, is what you can offer moving forward. And that's where like parents, uh, caregivers who are listening, like we've all had our own moments that are moments where we've risen from the ashes and being able to leverage the intention, the 
like hope that we have in those moments forward is so important. And I think mindfulness is a great way to do that because it teaches resilience. So whatever the background is, whatever your story is, whatever your struggle is, you have you have it in you to teach resilience because you've lived it, right? And ultimately, when we teach mindfulness to kids, that's what we're doing is we're teaching them how to be resilient no matter what life hands them. And so, yeah, I would love to share some activities that I do with kids to give people an idea of what it might look like if they start teaching mindfulness at a young age. I like to say that when kids are little, they actually invite us to mindfulness more than we invite them to mindfulness because in the toddler years and just those early times when kids are in that exploratory, really curious phase, they are pretty much mindful about everything, right? Like they're exploring the leaves, they're exploring the acorns, they're looking at snow with so much wonder and excitement. And so us being able to slow down and kind of match their mindfulness at that age, that's an invitation we can take to just explore with them and not kind of rush them through the moments when they're naturally curious and mindful. And I know as parents, we have a lot we've got to get done. So it's not like we can take every opportunity, but really just letting them dictate some of those moments is really great. As they get older, I like to really focus on helping them uh, develop an awareness of emotion. So we talk a lot about emotional intelligence and how <clears throat> when we're feeling something, we don't deny it right? We're not pretending we don't have it. We're accepting it and then we're working with it. Dr. Becky has this great phrase um, where she talks about sitting on benches with our kids and how life is kind of a series of benches. So if you imagine this big park and there are a whole bunch of benches in the park and our job as parents is to be able to sit on each of those emotional benches with our kids. So whether it's disappointment, whether it's anger, whether it's frustration, like being able to hold space for them to have that experience and process it. And a lot of times as parents, we weren't necessarily taught that. And so we're still cultivating the skill to do that in the moment along with them. So some of these tools that I'm going to share may resonate, especially with parents, because they they weren't taught, right? They weren't taught how to sit on the bench of frustration with their kid, and but they want to show up in that way. They want to be able to sit with their child wherever they're at. And so one of the things that I like to use is a little tiny finger light flashlight, and we call it the empathy flashlight. And we talk about how some kids have an empathy flashlight that's always on and their empathy. They're just like shining that empathy flashlight everywhere all the time. And for those kids, it's important to recognize that empathy flashlights, if they're on all the time, they're going to burn out. And so we want to make sure that we're recharging our batteries and we're not letting our empathy drain us. So uh, kids like I imagine you, Mark, would have been one of those kids where you're just like kind of taking everything in from everyone and just really attuned, you know, to the environment and to other people. I, I was one of those kids. I'm raising one of those kids. And, and so for those kids being able to imagine like, OK, I'm going to shine my empathy in this moment like a tool right? Like my empathy is going to come in handy right now because I'm with my friend and she's really sad and I'm going to figure out how to help her. But later on, when my brother is arguing with my sister, I don't need to try to get in the middle of that and solve it. I can go over here and just be on my own and not get in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And so the empathy flashlight works really well for kids who tend to be like more attuned and sensitive to what's going on around them. And then also it's helpful for kids who are not as attuned because they can start to practice. So it, with those kids, we say, okay, let's take out your empathy flashlight. And again, these finger lights, kids love them. They're super little and fun. And we just say, okay, shine your empathy flashlight on yourself. What's going on with you right now? What are you feeling? Why are you frustrated? Or what, you know, why are you sad? What's going on with you? 
Okay. Now let's shine your empathy flashlight on your sister. What is going on with your sister or your friend? Like why, why are they frustrated in this moment? What's going on with them? And the kids at first may not know what's going on with the other kid. You know, the highly sensitive ones, they'll know. But the other kids might not know. And so we kind of guide them in the cultivation of empathy in those moments. Like, well, she, you know what? She just woke up from her nap and she was really, you know, really tired and she's still a little bit cranky. And so when she took your toy and then hit you when you asked for it back, it was probably because she was still just trying to kind of wake up, you know, and that doesn't mean it, it's, it was good to hit you or it doesn't give her an excuse for hitting you, but that might've been why. So when she apologized, like we can accept her apology if we feel comfortable doing that, you know? Um, so I think the empathy flashlight can go a long way toward teaching kids empathy, but also teaching kids boundaries. Um, another one that I like to use is a brain with glasses. So I have these glasses. They're actually just color changing glasses that you might find in like a second grade classroom where they put the little lens in that's like red and then you put the yellow one in mm -hmm. to make orange. Um, so I'll just use a single lens and we'll say like, okay, right now your brain is wearing its sad glasses. So it looks like your brain is wearing its sad glasses. So it's seeing everything with blue. So you're feeling sad about like dinner. You're feeling sad about your friend. You're feeling sad. You have to take a bath. You're feeling sad that your dog might die someday. You're feeling, you know, like you're feeling all the things sad and that's because your brain is wearing its sad glasses. And so because your brain is wearing its sad glasses, it's just going to see everything that way. It doesn't mean everything is sad. It just means that right now that's how your brain is seeing it. And so we'll talk about the different lenses that your brain can have and what it means to figure out like how to go from sad to clear. So the idea being we want to have our clear glasses on most of the time and recognize when we're like operating with the nervous lenses in or the sad glasses on. And so as we teach kids like, these really tactile ways to understand emotion, we can start to help them understand how the brain works, what's going on and how they can work with emotion in a way that's really empowering instead of like victimizing, right? Because if we, if a kid is wearing their angry glasses and we just get mad at them for getting angry, we're not actually showing them how to move through and process the anger in the same way we could if we had like a punching bag in the other room and be like, it looks like you have a lot of anger right now. It looks like there's just a lot of anger in you what's going to be the best way for us to help that anger move through? We've got the punching bag over there. Would that help? And like, let them beat the heck out of that thing, right? I mean, kick it, punch it, hit it, whatever they want to scream at it. But we teach them what anger is to recognize it and then how to process it in a way that doesn't hurt anyone else. And then how to just accept it. Like, I'm angry right now. That's how I feel. Because later on, when we have teenagers, like, we want them to know what anger is, right? I mean, like, I want my teenage daughter to know anger because if someone is pushing a boundary with her or if she's in a situation where she's being treated unjustly, like, I want her to stick up for herself. Yeah. So I don't want to tamp down anger, right? I just want to help her channel it. Those are some great activities. I, I love that. I'd, I'd like the the brain in the glasses. Um, I'm not going too much into it. I started this uh version of Buddhism, Tibet Buddhism that had this esoteric practice that was actually very similar to that. You would go in these mm -hmm. like different color rooms and the rooms are supposed to evoke a certain energy. Um, and the mystical part of it was that, you know, once you're in this energy and you're, and you're in a, a yoga pose, you're holding a pose in this room and the room has like all geometric weirdness. Right. And it's supposed to kind of bring up that energy in you and let you sit with that energy. Um, whether or not that worked or not is a whole nother thing, but I think there is something to that. And I like that it's starting to in my interpretation, like teach them some of that spiritual 
messaging of like, you're not your feelings and you're not your emotions. They're part of you and they're important information, but you are the thing that is like changing out the lenses, right? Or you're the thing that is able to have a little bit more control over your life. Um, And you don't take it so personally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love, I want to try that practice that you did in yeah, the colorful called, room. <laughs> uh, they're called um, uh, my tree rooms. Uh, that's awesome. So we can look and see if there's someone there. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that's really cool. I, I'm curious, like, and you talked about it a little bit, but how do you find the line between processing and acting out an emotion, like the anger um, and containing it? Right. And of course yeah. not stuffing it, but containing it and setting boundaries with it. How would you teach a kid about that? Yeah. So I tend to work with uh, kids who have pretty high energy, high anger. And one of the things we talk about is like, it's okay to express anger, but it's not okay to hurt someone else with it. Uh, unless you're being, you know, unless someone's attacking you, in which case, please feel free. Especially uh, as you're older, right? As kids, when it's a kid, we want to work through it a little more and problem solve. But I think that the main thing we talk about is splatter painting emotion. So if you think of like a Jackson Pollock painting, right? There's just like paint everywhere. And we'll say, are you splatter painting this emotion? Are you kind of like channeling it and, and painting with it? Are you making something intentional with it? Or are you just kind of like letting it explode out of you? And kids are going to have varying degrees of ability when it comes to that, right? And they're going to have a, um, a a time learning it. I tell parents six to 12 months, right? It's going to take for them for to sure. learn yeah. learn how to do that really skillfully. Yeah. But the the key is, I think, yeah, not hurting any other living thing is how I describe it. So you you are entitled to, within the bounds of your family rules, like if stomping is okay in your family, stomping. If hitting a pillow, screaming into a pillow is okay, screaming into a pillow. We have a wall downstairs where my daughter kicks the soccer ball really, really hard. And sometimes she breaks the little barrier we have in place and we just replace it and put a new one. Mm-hmm. But I think I encourage families to come up with ways that are okay for them. So like in your particular family, you're going to have some specific ways that expressing a- anger, sadness, nervousness is okay. Work on those, like figure out what those are and then create creative ways for kids to express within those boundaries so that they can be comfortable with the expression without feeling um, like overwhelmed by trying to keep it in. I think that's great. And and I just love the creativity that I think you're displaying here with both, you know, the kids you work with and your own family. I think it inspires parents to get out of the box and set up things like that if it works for their children and their family. Um, So we have to wrap up here. We're coming near the end of our episode. Can you let people know where they can find you online if they want to get engaged with some of this stuff and, and learn some of these more techniques? Yeah, I would love to. So my website is www.thestressnanny.com. I'm on Instagram as The Stress Nanny. And I have my podcast called The Stress Nanny. So if you search The Stress Nanny, you'll find Easy. me in one way or another. And I have kids mindfulness coaching. So I meet with kids for 30 minutes a week. We go through, I'll send them um, these activities in the mail. So I send them a little package every week and we go through the activity and then we apply it to their particular situation, anything that's going on with them. And then we just connect again the next week, kind of review how that activity went. If, if it was helpful, if it wasn't helpful. And basically we're just cultivating self-awareness at every turn and then adding the emotional intelligence and that sense of resilience to help them through whatever they're navigating. That's great. It sounds like a really fun interactive process that you could do with these kids in it and bring the family involved. I love the idea of them getting like a little gift every week um, that yeah. they get to like play with uh, virtually. Yeah. And then share, they share it with the family too. Like they can be the teacher now instead of the victim. They're empowered to teach it. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining the show. It was a phenomenal episode. I think it's, you know, a lot of similarities, a lot of value. Um, I think people are going to really get a lot out of this. Um, and yeah, if you're listening and you like what you're hearing, definitely check her out, thestressnanny.com. I think it's a phenomenal resource that you're offering to kids and to parents. Um, so thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.